It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The rocky land of Manchester, Vermont, gave farmers a never-ending chore, removing stones to prepare the fields for tilling. Ten-year-old Lewis Colvin worked in his grandparents' field on the morning of May 10, 1812, pulling small rocks from the dirt. Lewis worked alongside his father, Russell, and two of his uncles, 23-year-old Stephen and 19-year-old Jesse Bourne. The work was exhausting and tedious. As the morning wore on, tempers flared. Russell and Stephen got into a yelling match. Little Lewis watched his father pick up a branch and strike his uncle Stephen, but it was a glancing blow and Stephen, still on his feet and now even angrier, grabbed a bigger branch. Stephen swung true, knocking Russell to the ground. He tried to get back on his feet, but Stephen smacked him again. This time, Russell didn't get up. Scared at the sight of his father on the ground motionless, Lewis ran home. A day later, his uncle Stephen demanded a promise from Lewis that he would never tell anyone what he saw. And if he broke his word, Stephen would kill him. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This week we're examining the 1812 disappearance of Russell Colvin. We'll look at the circumstances that preceded his vanishing and the ghostly vision that sparked a murder investigation seven years later. Next week, we'll follow the resulting criminal trial and see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Tucked in the green mountains of Vermont, the Bourne family lived and farmed in the city of Manchester. Barney Bourne's father was one of the first settlers of the city, purchasing his first parcel of land in 1766. The family enjoyed social esteem in Manchester as a founding family. Barney married Elizabeth Lewis in the mid-1770s. 
Together, they had six children, though only five lived to adulthood. Their middle child was a daughter named Sally. In 1801, at the age of 18, Sally married 22-year-old Russell Colvin. The young couple moved to the Colvin family farm in Manchester immediately after their wedding, and it wasn't long before their first child, Lewis, was born in 1802. Russell had been running the family farm for the past year or two, ever since his father abandoned the family. No one knew for certain whether Russell's father was alive or dead, but the town took responsibility for Russell's mother, Rosanna Colvin, as if she were a widow. In early 19th century Vermont, the welfare of widows and fatherless children fell on the local government. They were provided for at taxpayer expense. Though Russell was an able-bodied man when his father left, Manchester town officials were concerned about his ability to manage the family farm. He was, in their words, weak of mind. While no one denied he was a hard worker, they didn't believe he had the intelligence or temperament to be the sole source of support for his mother. Manchester town officials, fearing the burden of supporting Rosanna would fall on them, stepped in and seized control of the Colvin family farm in early 1802. They arranged for a tenant farmer to rent it out, and the future proceeds now went directly to Rosanna. Without an income, Russell, Sally, and their growing family were forced to move in with Sally's parents. Russell and Sally went on to have six children over the next decade, all supported by her parents. By 1812, Sally's two younger brothers, 24-year-old Stephen and 19-year-old Jesse Bourne, grew resentful of this arrangement. The brothers lived in rental accommodations and worked as hired help on other people's farms. All the while, Russell and Sally leached off of Barney and Elizabeth financially. And it wasn't only money they provided to their daughter and son-in-law. Sally and Russell often left town, leaving Elizabeth to care for the children. Sally would go to stay with friends for a few days at a time, and Russell would seemingly just wander off. On one occasion, Russell left for eight or nine months to go to Rhode Island. There was speculation he went there to look for his father. If he could prove his father was still alive and that his mother was not a widow, Russell might be able to regain control of the family farm. But if this was his purpose, the trip was a disappointment. When he arrived back in Manchester in the spring, he was back working at the Bourne family farm, his in-laws still supporting his large family. In April of 1812, Stephen's resentment toward his sister and brother-in-law bubbled over. He vented to his friend and neighbor, William Wyman, about the burden 34-year-old Russell put on their family. He wondered if his parents were obligated to keep providing for them. When William said he thought Barney had no choice but to support his grandchildren, Stephen became angry. He asked if there was a way to prevent Russell and Sally from having more children. William laughed. No one could stop a lawfully married couple from having sex. Stephen said that if there was no way to stop them from having more children, he would put an end to their relationship himself. William shook his head as he imagined Stephen trying to tell Russell to stop sleeping with his own wife. It was a few weeks after this conversation that on May 10, 1812, 
Stephen and Jesse Bourne found themselves clearing stones with Russell Colvin and his 10-year-old son, Lewis. Back at the house, Elizabeth Bourne was looking after her grandchildren as Sally was out of town again visiting friends. Russell bragged about the value of the work he did on the Bourne family farm, and Stephen retorted that he was a fool if he thought that. Russell shouted at Stephen that he wasn't a fool, and Stephen yelled back that Russell was destroying the family's financial standing. According to Lewis, the verbal argument turned physical. His father picked up a branch and swung it at Stephen. Stephen then picked up a larger branch and knocked Russell down. Lewis ran back home to his grandmother's house. He told her about the fight and that his father was lying motionless. Elizabeth rushed the boy out with an errand that required him to walk into town and back, a task that took him several hours. When Lewis returned that evening, his father wasn't there. He asked where he was. One of his uncles replied that Russell had gone to hell. Five days later, on May 15th, 29-year-old Sally returned from her visit with friends. In that time, no one had heard from Russell. Sally asked Lewis where his father was. Lewis parroted what his uncle had told him. His father was in hell. Sally was used to both her husband's wanderings and her brother's complaints about Russell. She didn't ask questions. Neighbors noticed that Russell had left, but they too were used to Russell leaving town. It wasn't until months passed without word that some neighbors started asking questions. Most of Russell's trips lasted a week or two. The only exception was his trip to Rhode Island. But on that occasion, he had kept in touch with his family the entire time he was gone. Being gone this long without any contact was unusual for Russell. The most ready answer was that Russell had run off like his father and deserted his family. But another story emerged in 1813, after Russell had been gone for nearly a year. Jesse Bourne began telling people that Russell had enlisted in the War of 1812. However, the War of 1812 began the month after Russell was last seen, but it's likely Nearly a year later, no one could exactly remember the last time they saw Russell. Town officials were made aware of Russell's disappearance, but they weren't troubled by the news. Instead, they were focused on what to do with the Colvin family farm. Rosanna, Russell's mother, died in late 1813. It was determined the tenant farmer should continue working the land, with the rent being paid to Barney Bourne for the support of Russell's children. Russell's absence was noted by the church in 1813, and Sally was excommunicated for becoming pregnant after her husband left the family. In 1815, Sally was pregnant again, giving birth to her second child outside of marriage. Now with eight children total, Sally was eager to get child support for her newest baby, she consulted with an attorney about establishing paternity. The attorney explained to her that under Vermont law, her husband was the presumed father of her child. However, if she could show that Russell was dead and she was a widow, she could seek support from the child's actual father. Sally ranted to her family about her meeting with the attorney. 
Not only had Russell deserted her with their six children, he left her in legal limbo, unable to seek financial support for the other two children. Stephen assured Sally that he knew Russell was dead. Surprised, she looked to Jesse. Jesse told her it was true, and she could tell the court that she was an unmarried woman, but he knew she wouldn't do that. It was only then it dawned on Sally. Her husband didn't leave her. The only way her brothers could know Russell was dead was if they killed him. She took Jesse's statement as a warning, swearing in court that Russell was dead would lead to an investigation. Any investigation would point back at her brothers. Sally decided to protect her brothers. She didn't pursue the paternity suit. Later in 1815, Stephen was living in a town near Manchester called Dorset, about eight miles away. He befriended a couple named Daniel and Eunice Baldwin. One afternoon, Stephen did what he liked to do best, complain about his sister and her large family sucking the family dry. Eunice asked where the father of all these children was. Stephen replied that Russell had run off after acting strangely for some time. He didn't know where Russell ended up, but that some people in town thought that Stephen had killed him. This struck the Baldwins as an odd thing to tell new neighbors, but not as odd as what Stephen said next. He told them that he and his brother Jesse told their nephew that they put Russell where the potatoes wouldn't freeze. The Baldwins took that to mean a cellar. Root cellars were used in Vermont in the 19th century to prevent vegetables from freezing in the harsh winter conditions. Stephen explained they were just teasing the boy. He said he certainly wouldn't have said something like that had he actually killed Russell, but the Baldwins were suspicious all the same. They weren't the only ones either. Up until 1816, the friends and neighbors of the Bourne family accepted the explanation that Russell Colvin had deserted his family. But the various stories the Bourne brothers told to explain his disappearance started to spread. Suspicions grew. By 1819, the town believed 31-year-old Stephen and 26-year-old Jesse Bourne were cold-blooded murderers. Coming up, the brothers face hard questions. Now back to the story. 31-year-old Stephen Bourne moved to Dorset with his family in 1817. While he was gone from his hometown of Manchester, Vermont, rumors circulated about his involvement in the disappearance of his brother-in-law, Russell Colvin, five years prior. According to the gossip, Stephen's 26-year-old brother, Jesse, had been involved as well. Much of the gossip originated from a rather ironic source, Stephen himself. His old friend, William Wyman, had told others about Stephen's grievances with Russell and how he wanted to stop Russell and Sally from having more children. His neighbors in Dorset told people that Stephen joked about leaving Russell where the potatoes wouldn't freeze. His friends told of how Stephen said he knew Russell was dead after Sally failed to get child support for her new baby. They all asked themselves how he could be so sure. Stephen returned to Manchester for a visit in March of 1819. He was greeted by friends and neighbors asking direct questions about what happened to Russell. 
While he had answered these questions over the years, he was taken aback by the accusatory tone he was hearing. After one person openly accused him of killing Russell Colvin, Stephen became enraged. He blamed William for spreading the gossip. Stephen went to William's house and demanded he stop telling lies. He then offered up an alibi, telling William he was plowing the field of another farm the day Russell vanished. But much like the Bourne brothers' varying stories about where Russell went when he left, Stephen's alibi changed repeatedly. Sometimes he said he was working other farms in Manchester. Sometimes he said he was one town over. Similarly, Jesse told one person he was out of town when Russell went missing, and another that he was working in a shop that day. It was hard enough for the brothers to prove their alibis from seven years before, but their changing stories made it doubly hard for the residents of Manchester to believe anything they said. Barney and Elizabeth backed their sons up. They said neither of them were at the farm that day. As grown men with jobs and homes of their own, it wouldn't be expected they would be doing such menial work as clearing stones at the family farm. The Bourne brothers thought Lewis was the only person who could put them at the scene, and he had just been a boy at the time. He may not even remember the day. But there was a second witness the brothers didn't know about, the neighbor, Thomas Johnson. Thomas was walking home on the morning of May 10, 1812, when he heard yelling, He stopped to listen but couldn't make out what was being said. But looking down at the Bourne's field, he could see four figures he recognized. They were brothers Stephen and Jesse Bourne, Russell Colvin, and Russell's 10-year-old son, Lewis. Stephen and Russell were shouting at each other. When Thomas confronted Stephen with his memory of that day, Stephen finally admitted he had been there but he insisted he had just stopped by to say hi in passing. And though having claimed for years that he didn't know the circumstances leading to Russell's departure, he now had a story for Thomas. After moving stones all day, Russell went home for his evening meal. Sally prepared and served a groundhog that Stephen had sent over to the family. During lean times, groundhogs were somewhat reluctantly turned to as a source of protein, But Russell, disgusted by the dinner, yelled to Sally that he was never going to eat in that house again. He stormed out, and that was the last time he was seen. Stephen's story was quickly dismissed by Thomas as a lie. It was well known by that point that Sally wasn't home when Russell went missing and didn't return for several days. The rumor mill was working overtime with every new story Stephen and Jesse gave, But these accusations against the men remained essentially small-town gossip. For the three weeks Stephen was in Manchester in March of 1819, no town officials questioned him about the disappearance. He returned to his farm in New York at the end of the month, and it seemed like that was the end of it. Until, a short time after Stephen left, his uncle Amos had a dream. Amos dreamt the ghost of Russell Colvin came to his bedside, declaring that he had been murdered. The apparition wanted to show Amos where his body was buried. Amos followed him to an old cellar that had been mostly filled in with dirt. This, the ghost said, 
was where they needed to dig for Russell's remains. This four-foot-by-four-foot root cellar was all that remained from a house that Barney Bourne previously owned. It had been torn down in the early 1800s, and later the property around the cellar was sold to Thomas Johnson. However, the cellar seemed significant because Stephen had told his nephew that Russell had gone to where the potatoes wouldn't freeze. Amos's story quickly circulated throughout Manchester. No one doubted that Amos had this dream. He was a successful farmer and civic leader with a reputation for honesty. Officials dismissed the interpretation of the dream as superstitious nonsense, but they couldn't convince the public of that. Pressure mounted, and the people of Manchester demanded the city do something about the murder they believed occurred, even though there was no evidence. Eventually, the town officials folded. In late April 1819, 26-year-old Jesse Bourne was arrested pending a court of inquiry into the disappearance of Russell Colvin seven years earlier. In early 19th century Vermont, an inquiry functioned similarly to a police investigation of today. Investigators looked at the evidence, questioned witnesses, and interrogated suspects. One major difference was that portions of the inquiry were open to the public. Heading this investigation was the town clerk, Joel Pratt, and the city's grand juror, Truman Hill. Usually, inquiries drew little interest in Manchester, but this case was a spectacle. The small courthouse couldn't fit everyone who wanted a seat at the inquiry. They had to move to a local church where proceedings began on April 27, 1819. The first day of the inquiry was an interrogation of Jesse Bourne. No matter what question was put to him, he denied any involvement in his brother-in-law's disappearance. The next day, Amos Bourne led the crowd to the cellar he saw in his dream. A man went down to dig through the dirt. They were expecting to find a body, but instead the crowd watched as Amos pulled out a long jackknife, a small penknife, a coat button, and other assorted household debris. Joel Pratt took the items to Sally Colvin for identification. Sally looked them over and claimed one of the knives belonged to Russell. Pratt asked her about the buttons on Russell's coat, and she described them as having a flower design in the center. When they rubbed the dirt off the button found in the cellar, it was a match. Russell's son, now 17-year-old Louis Colvin, testified at the inquiry as well. He told Pratt and Hill that he last saw his father while they were clearing stones from a field. Contrary to the rumors, Lewis said he and his father were alone. Russell then began acting strangely and throwing fence rails. Frightened by his behavior, Lewis ran back to his grandparents' home. He never saw his father again. The inquiry looked at this point as if it was going to close without resolution. Aside from a knife and a coat button that may have been Russell's, they had no evidence. They couldn't even prove Russell was dead. But on May 1, 1819, two separate incidents occurred that renewed confidence in the inquiry. The first was a report from a young boy who was walking his dog along an old road that went past the Bourne property. 
the dog pawed at a rotten stump along the roadside and came out with a bone. When the little boy looked, he saw multiple bones concealed in the hollow of the stump. The news reached the investigators that evening. The remains of Russell Colvin may have been found at last. The second break came when Jesse Bourne received a visit at the jail. Truman Hill, one of the investigators, wanted to put a little pressure on Jesse, so he asked the Bourne's neighbor, Thomas Johnson, to go speak to him. Thomas had previously sworn he witnessed an argument between Stephen and Russell on the day of the disappearance. It has never been revealed what was said during Thomas's visit to the jail, but the conversation rattled Jesse. Immediately after Thomas left, Jesse told Hill that he knew what happened to Russell. The month before, while Stephen was visiting Manchester, he had confided in Jesse that he killed Russell and buried him where no one would find him. However, Jesse had an idea where Stephen might have buried Russell on the mountainside. So on Sunday, May 2nd, searchers were sent in two directions. Some went to where Jesse directed them, and another group went to the hollowed-out stump where the bones had been uncovered. The searchers on the mountainside found nothing, but those at the stump were able to excavate the bones. They were heavily charred and damaged, making most of them hard to identify, but some appeared to be from a human foot. Four doctors examined the bones. Three believed they were human, but the fourth doctor wasn't convinced the bones matched due largely to religious beliefs that forbid the desecration of the body after death. It was rare in early 19th century for bodies to be donated to medical schools. Many doctors had little hands-on experience with human anatomy, so it wasn't surprising they couldn't definitively identify human bones. The investigators caught a lucky break, though. A man living nearby had his leg amputated years before, in the tradition of the 1800s, his leg was buried in the cemetery. The man gave permission for them to dig it up so they could take a look at his foot bones. Comparing the exhumed foot to the bones from the stump, all four doctors now agreed. These were not human. Russell Colvin's body remained missing. This wasn't the big break they were hoping for. but they still had Jesse's statement that Stephen had confessed to him. Investigators took that statement to Lewis Colvin, who then admitted to witnessing the fight between his uncle Stephen and his father. Stephen had threatened his life if he told anyone, so he kept quiet. With Jesse and Lewis's statements in hand, the court ordered Stephen Bourne's arrest. Coming up, the Bourne brothers prepare for trial. Now back to the story. 30-year-old Stephen Bourne was arrested in his New York home in May 1819 and taken back to Manchester, Vermont. When Stephen's wife heard he was being arrested for the murder of Russell Colvin, she wept. She asked the men taking her husband away how she was going to support her children, and the men dug into their own pockets to leave her with some money. When Stephen arrived in Manchester, he was thrown in a cell with his 26-year-old brother 
in the hopes Jesse would persuade Stephen to confess. But the opposite happened. After speaking with Stephen, Jesse recanted his own statement about the murder. Not long after, patriarch Barney Bourne was arrested. Barney had never been implicated in the crime, but he provided his sons with an alibi, so public opinion was against him. They reasoned that he provided a fake alibi to cover up the murder because he, too, was involved. However, the magistrate made the unpopular decision to release Barney without charge. There was no evidence he had anything to do with Russell's murder. Elizabeth Bourne had also provided an alibi for her sons. She wasn't arrested, but she was excommunicated from her church. It was clear that in the eyes of the public and the church, the Bourne brothers were already guilty. But as sure as they were that Russell had been murdered by Stephen and Jesse Bourne, the legal case had some major holes. To support a murder charge, the state had to not only show that Russell was dead, but that Stephen and Jesse intended to kill Russell. Lewis said his father struck Stephen first, and Stephen retaliated in the moment without a clear intent to kill. There was no evidence Jesse had participated at all. Beyond that, the searches of the cellar, the stump, and the mountainside had failed to produce the body. They had to consider the possibility that this was a case of manslaughter and a cover-up rather than a planned, cold-blooded murder. But town officials felt the pressure to deliver the outcome the public desired, a murder trial. Needing more evidence, they separated the brothers in June 1819. Jesse was moved to a cell with Silas Merrill. Silas was in jail either on perjury or forgery charges, but more importantly to the investigators, he was a willing jailhouse informant. It only took an hour with Thomas Johnson to get Jesse to break the first time. With Silas in the cell with him around the clock, Jesse may confess again. Within a few weeks, Silas reported to the town clerk that Jesse had told him everything. According to Silas, Jesse's confession came in the middle of the night after a visit from his father earlier in the day. Jesse woke Silas up and said something had entered their cell through the window. This thing was sitting on the bed. Silas looked over and saw nothing. Jesse, shaken by whatever he saw that Silas didn't, began to confess. He reiterated the same story known to everyone in Manchester about how he and his brother were clearing rocks with Russell. This time, the story continued past when little Lewis ran off. Jesse said that Stephen struck Russell one more time in the head. As Russell lay motionless on the ground, Barney Bourne came to the field. Russell was not yet dead, just unconscious. Barney left and returned later, asking if Russell was still alive. He was. He repeated this one more time, and once again, the answer was that Russell was alive. Knocked out, but alive. On this third trip to the field, Barney instructed his sons to carry Russell to the old Bourne home, where only the foundation remained. There, Barney used a knife to cut Russell's throat. As the sun sank, they dug his grave in the cellar. 
The reason Russell wasn't found there was because the brothers moved him a few years later, afraid he would be found. They reburied the bones in a nearby barn. However, the barn caught fire in 1815, and the two men once again moved Russell's bones. This time, they smashed them into small pieces and threw them in the Battenkill, a river that ran along the eastern boundary of Manchester. This new statement gave investigators what they needed. It showed intent to kill Russell after the initial fight. It also explained why they couldn't find the body. But this still left them short of a solid case. Silas Merrill was a known liar. He was facing charges rooted in dishonesty. Without some type of corroboration, any defense attorney could tear Silas's statement apart on the stand. Investigators also didn't believe Silas's story was entirely true. Though Silas put the actual murder on Barney's shoulders, they chose not to re-arrest Barney. And if the police didn't believe him fully, there was no way a jury would. They needed to strengthen their case before it went to the grand jury in September. A confession from Stephen was what they needed, so they started applying more pressure. All summer, 31-year-old Stephen languished in a cramped cell without so much as a window for fresh air or relief from the heat. His hands and feet were shackled, the chain bolted to the ground. If this treatment wasn't enough to wear him down, the court officers periodically reminded him that the prescribed penalty for murder at the time was death by hanging. His only hope of mercy was a confession. If Russell really hit him first, it might be considered manslaughter, not murder. Perhaps his life would be spared and he wouldn't leave his young children orphaned. Finally, on August 27, 1819, a month before the grand jury, Stephen told investigators that he wanted to confess. They set him up in the courthouse with a paper and pen. Stephen wrote his full confession for the murder of Russell Colvin. This confession, while similar to what Jesse had supposedly told his cellmate, had one significant difference. Stephen removed both Jesse and Barney from the narrative. In his version, he acted completely alone. This confession was not what they wanted. It cleared Jesse from wrongdoing, and Truman Hill was determined to have both brothers charged. He believed they were both guilty and didn't want Jesse to get away with murder because of his brother's protection. He decided not to show this confession to the grand jury out of fear they would let Jesse go. He had no choice but to rely on the questionable Silas Merrill. Silas told the grand jury the story Jesse told him, which implicated both brothers. Because the defense does not cross-examine witnesses at a grand jury and only the state's side of the case is presented, Silas's character was not an issue. The grand jury quickly indicted both men on murder charges. Stephen realized he wouldn't be shown any mercy for having confessed. While plea bargaining is a regular aspect of criminal proceedings today, these deals were rare in 1819. Whether the brothers pleaded guilty or went to trial, the charge and consequence remained the same. The family hired attorney Richard Skinner, 
who advised the Bourne brothers to plead not guilty. The trial was set for October 27, 1819. If found not guilty, the brothers would go back to their wives and their farms. But if the jury found them guilty, they would be dead in three months. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with the trial of the Bourne brothers and the shocking events that put the entire case in question. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. For more information on the Bourne brothers, amongst the many sources we used, we found Gerald W. McFarlane's book, The Counterfeit Man, extremely helpful to our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself, did Stephen and Jesse Bourne murder their brother-in-law, Russell Colvin? Or did Russell willingly abandon his family? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Maggie Admire. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.